Listeners, readers, welcome back to part two of our three-part lecture on Rachel Kong's incredible Goodbye Vitamin. If you haven't listened to part one and you're interested in why you should read the book and the, the cover and my analysis of the very first part and the title, be sure to listen to part one. Uh, in part two, we're going to talk about structure and pacing, and then we'll move on to the third part. So um, one quick interjection, one of my super talented uh, producers just was pointing out the fact that in Los Angeles, Euclid, so you have first through whatever street it is, the 20s or something. So it's first, and then it goes first, second, third, fourth, and then it goes all the way up to Euclid, which is the 13th street. But because of our weird superstitious society, which this is just never ceases to amaze me, like in elevators, where they cut out a whole floor and it goes straight from 12 to 14. Um, apparently they didn't want to have a 13th street. So it's Euclid. And then we go on resuming with the numbers, which is so cool because that's another one of those really excellent nuances that Rachel Kong, you know, the LA insiders, which I am not one of, will understand that Euclid is a stand-in for 13th, which is obviously uh, in our weird culture, a, a very unlucky, very inauspicious street. So we're going to dive into a little bit further discussion of the calendar. So I talked a little bit before about December 26th and how like what a drag of a day that is. It's also starting, um, you know, in the midst of the holidays. It's not we're not starting on January 1st. We're starting kind of in the midst of a chaotic, often very emotional, very sort of family uh, intensive time. Uh, and at the end of the year, we're starting at the end of something, not at the beginning, which is very significant because it's not, you know, a fresh start. It is really talking about decline. Uh, and, and it's very beautiful, I think, the way that the calendar is also reflecting that. The calendar also very importantly focuses the reader on the idea of chronology. So I had a writing professor um, at one point who was talking about how chronology is your friend which was a very good piece of advice. This was back when I was writing some very recondite, very experimental fiction. And I don't know what it was exactly I was working on, but he was like, you know, chronology is your friend, which uh, I, I hope that I took that advice because as a reader, that is certainly the case. It also allows you to play, I think, with structure in a way that's very interesting. If you know that we have kind of a consistent chronology moving forward, then you're able to have some nice digressions, which is exactly what Kong does. So not only do we have this chronology that is helping us to sort of keep the story in mind, but we're also moving in time. I mean, it's kind of inexorable. You know, it's this idea of like, you are moving through seasons and we are moving through time and it's end of a year and it's, you know, it, it, like people are gonna die. Like that's basically what, you know, any anytime you have a time, stamp any sort of like a clock or a watch or certainly a clock that is broken or even a river or um you know a setting sun all of all of anything that sort of is marking time should be some on some level it should be making you think of death which is a bummer but often you know good writing is going to deal with hard topics so you have this chronology that is also reinforcing the idea of of life passing of, of life ending uh, and again, we have this Mr. Young, so um, who is not so young anymore. We also then know that we have Ruth Young, which is nice. We don't really think of her as being Ruth Young, but there is this sense of her as, as actually being young. She's not that young. She's turning 30. I mean, 
for all you 20 year olds out there, like that is very, very young, but it is, um, you know, she's getting to a point in her life where she's feeling like she should be in a romantic relationship. That's something she's really interested in doing. And unfortunately, you know, I think there are some milestone birthdays that occur that make people feel a little more urgent about their romantic lives. Uh, it also um, is really, it gets you, this, this calendar really gets you in touch with the seasons. There's a point where she's looking very sad and her dad says it's called the fall, which is so great. I mean, it's this idea of like, of course you feel sad, it's the fall. And, and it's such a good kind of um, nuanced thing for him to say because he's consoling her, but he's also being very real about the fact that this decline, I mean, I love the autumn, I love the fall, but it's, you know, it's called the fall. It's about, it's about things withering. It's about decline. It's about, you know, the, the end of a year. It's, you know, shorter days, darkness, like, you know, for all the reasons that I often really love it. I love, I love a short day. I love the darkness. I can read more, sit inside with my tea and my book and my dogs and just, you know, chill. Okay. But so this idea when she's sad, this idea of the fall is a very important underscoring of this idea of, of time and the inexorability of, of time passing. Okay. But one thing it does also, which I just alluded to briefly, but we're going to look at more carefully here, is that when you have a nice calendar and when you have this nice chronology that, that the reader feels very comfortable and, and there's sort of a, like a firm scaffolding, you can then have really great digressions. So we're gonna look um, and, and sort of facts. Like you can, because you feel like the there is like this kind of order to things, then you can kind of hang different things on the scaffolding. So there are a lot of digressions and facts. Uh, let's look at page 17 briefly. A lot of them are medical, which I found really interesting. Um, and I actually, I mean, I'm not someone for better or for worse. I am not someone who does a lot of reading to learn things. I mean, like facts, you know, I like to learn, but not, I don't need to learn facts. But in this case, um, she really did teach me some stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gaining a whole new appreciation for whatever this is. So on the bottom of 17, I read, Aloys Alzheimer was a senior physician at the Municipal Mental Asylum in Frankfurt when Frau Auguste Dieter was admitted. The year was 1901. She was a 51-year-old woman who was anxious and forgetful and, near the end of her life, behaved aggressively and unpredictably. She died five years later. Then down at the bottom of this chunk, which is all about Dr. Alzheimer, down at the bottom, I wish they'd name it Augusts because Alzheimer's really when she was the one who suffered. So I love this, this idea that August is the one who is suffering. Like they should have named it after the person who's really having a hard time. I, in my mind right now, I'm just thinking of Asperger's. I'm just like happy that my last name is not Asperger. Alzheimer, it just sounds very German and very sort of, you know, but I think we, it, it is interesting the way that we, end up defining diseases by these, by, by names of, of certain practitioners or people who discover them. And in this case, I really love the idea of, of these kind of medical pieces of information and anecdotes, but that are always bringing us back to kind of this, this suffering. If we look at 74 and 75, so we're kind of up here in the middle of 74 at the top. The aqueduct was started in 1908. It would divert water from the farms in Owens Valley 
whose water was runoff from the Sierra Nevadas. The question was always, who should get the water, Owens Valley or Los Angeles? I mean, this is the kind of thing I can really dig into because I am a freak about water and the water wars and about, I mean, I'm a lifetime Californian who grew up, you know, always in drought. Like the water saving measures that we take over here they're kind of astounding, not to say totally neurotic. But this idea, I mean, I know this whole Owens Valley aqueduct and I can picture it in my mind, that big cement thing coming down. And this question of water is becoming more and more urgent. So this kind of factual paragraph chunked in here is both very pleasing for the reader because you're learning something, but every single one of them is also very significant. So we're gonna look uh, at, um, oh, I also, um, on page 49, one of the things that I really loved about this book was the fact that he, as a professor, was a professor of California history. I loved the specificity of that. And I think, um, you know, as a native Californian, it was particularly interesting to me. But I also think, I mean, not to self-aggrandize, but I do think that California is a subject of some interest for the rest of the nation, partially because we are the best state in the nation but also because California tends to do things a little differently. California tends to be somewhat in the vanguard. I think we're like, what, like the ninth, like gross domestic product or some, whatever, whatever that phrase is. We're like, we have a very large economy. We have really, really shitty public schools and we have a lot of problems, a lot of homelessness. I mean, we've got some real issues, but I do think that we are a, um, you know, a subject of some curiosity that is, that is very, um, it's so delightful to me when this professor of California history is sort of lobbing out these different things about California. So let's look at page 49. So kind of right uh, in the middle here. Barring two exceptions, there is no such thing as a California tree, he says to me in his teacher's voice. It's because of him I already know this. Okay, I was so intrigued. I was like, how can there be no native California tree? Like, what what does that mean? Um, and then, and I was so uh, taken by the idea of learning. And then when she says that she already knows this and he's telling it to her again, there is that sense of sadness, you know, that, that she is, uh, you know, he's beginning to repeat himself. All the trees in California at some point were carefully selected, then planted, coaxed into growing here, except for redwoods. The other exception, ancient bristlecone pines, the oldest trees in the world, which somehow live in California in Bishop. The oldest one is 5,000 years old and its location is a forest service secret. It's in Bishop and that's all the public can know. We can't be trusted. So I love, I, I just, I mean, this is a fact, like that is so interesting to me. And I think I would think that's interesting if it were Louisiana or any other great state in the nation. I am gonna quibble a tiny bit. I think that she could have I mean, this is one of those writing outages. I think she could have gotten rid of that very last sentence. For my, and my opinion, it would have been a little stronger had she just said, it's in Bishop and that's all the public can know. I don't think the we can't be trusted part is as important. Although I could certainly argue that this idea of we can't be trusted, there are lots of reasons why she may or may not be uh, you know, a trusting daughter. We can't be trusted. You know, The father can't be trusted by the mother. There are lots of issues of trust in the novel, but just, looking at this one, this one paragraph. 
But I love this kind of combination of stuff that is very uh, intimate for their family. It's a story that she's not a story. It's a fact she's heard before. This is her father's passion. It's in, in and of course, you know, the idea of trees and of being grounded and of things being ancient really underscores this idea of the ephemeral nature of life and the fact that we are moving inexorably toward this man's death. So there, it's just an, it's it's beautiful and it's engaging and it's interesting. I just thought it was excellent. Okay, and then we're going to look at 74 briefly for another one of these. We're looking at 74 for another one of these um, these sort of facts that she is providing. So down in the um, down at the bottom here. Fetal circulation is different from that of born humans. Fetuses have fine hair all over them that born humans don't have. Fetuses do a thing like breathing that isn't actually breathing. The motions develop their lungs. They take their first breaths when they're born, and that's when the whole system changes incredibly, unborn to born. So she talks a lot. This this idea of born humans is a um, it, it's a motif that is that sort of a motif is simply like a like a metaphor or a um, a simile, a symbol, something some sort of figurative language that is spread throughout the entire novel. Um, this idea of a born human is really interesting in part because it's about you know not being in a symbiotic relationship with your mother. It's about being out in the world. It's about vulnerability. I think in this case, like when she's talking about practicing breathing and taking the first breath and the fetus and and like all of these things that we take as involuntary and we don't even think about them. Now I'm thinking about my breath that I'm taking in right now. <gasps> Just kidding. I mean, always a little bit, but so there's um, there's this sense of of this fetus as being incredibly like it's this incredibly delicate system that is doing a totally different thing in the womb and then is completely altered and, you know, continues breathing for the rest of its existence. She's again pointing out this very interesting fact. And it's also in the service of the story because of the vulnerability of the human body and of breath and of and of how fleeting all of these all of these things are. I also really enjoyed the fact we have some medical things, we have some natural things about California. We have things like this that have to do with her job and they have to do um, with this ultrasound uh, tech position that she has that for her, it feels a bit underwhelming in terms of her kind of career goals, uh, but which is going to be part of the arc, which we're going to discuss in the third part. But but there is this this beautiful sort of collection of facts that we find out that have to do with her profession. Then there are also some really random facts that I love, which uh, we're going to look at some of those on page five. Robert Kearns, who invented the intermittent windshield wiper, was legally blind in one eye. It's something Joel told me once. An errant champagne cork shot Kearns in the eye on his wedding night. While driving his Ford Galaxy through light rain, he had the idea of modeling the windshield wiper's mechanism on the human eye, which blinks every few seconds rather than continuously. I mean, I could spend 90 minutes just talking about this one paragraph. So I love this, um, again, totally random, but it is an intermittent, like a windshield wiper, the windshield, you know, is something that allows you to see in all sorts of weather, you know, it protects you from the wind, it's, you can see through it, there's all sorts of things that have to do with protection and have to do with vulnerability and have to do with the systems that we create around ourselves. I mean, just in the windshield. And then this idea of inclement weather and the idea of, of winter and rain and drought in California and water and tears, 
all of that, you know, having to do also with these windshield wipers. And then the blind in one eye from the champagne cork on his wedding night, you know, it's such an excellent echo or sort of underscoring of the fact that this couple who is at the center of the book have real marital issues. I mean, they also are a very sweet couple together and also have, you know, I don't think that our Ruth really has a like a perfect sense of what's going on for them, but there is a sense that they're, you know, they're working on it. So you have this um, this incredible like sort of moment here where we have this windshield wiper, which seems like it has nothing to do with anything, but you can pick it apart and tie it to all of these other elements. And then the idea of the champagne cork and the night, the wedding night and being blind in one eye is something that is repeated throughout the throughout the novel. So um, I want to take a very important moment here to say that it's it's one thing to sort of look at the structure of the novel and to look at the fact that there is this really beautiful scaffolding with the chronology and then these really incredible digressions that are nuanced and interesting and all sort of woven together. It's, it's, it's enough to do that, but it's also important to take one step further and say, so what? Like, what is it that she's doing here? And I think one of the things that Ruth is doing is really trying to distract herself so all of these digressions are, are, you know, they're nuanced and they're connected to the story, but they're also simply distraction. They're distraction from her terrible breakup she's undergoing. They're a distraction from her family problems and the fact that she's moved back home. They're a distraction from the fact that she is not super happy with her professional life. So it's important to, to look at the chronology and understand, you know, that this is about death and sort of inexorably moving toward the end of something. But also these digressions, I would argue, are a very important indication that that Ruth is really needing, she's needing, um, you know, to sort of get out of her own head. And she's going to help us see how she's doing that by adding in these incredible digressions. It's such a nuanced and really interesting take on how to structure a novel. And I find it so effective. It feels unique to me, which is saying a lot because I've read so much that it, it doesn't feel that often that I come across something where, I mean, I love digressions and I come across them all the time, but ones that are so consistent, but that also seem to be providing this, this much kind of larger message is really, really well done. Okay. We're going to talk about structure now. So the structure of the novel is, it, it has everything to do with this, with, uh, the, uh sort of these the digression and this scaffolding of the of the chronology of the calendar and and i again i thought this was so well done we have in in addition to this chronology and then also these amazing digressions that are really adding nuance to a lot of of the sort of more straightforward elements of the story we also have this this element of the structure that's a little bit pacing uh, and a little bit plot that is so well done. So pacing is simply kind of a fancy word for uh, how information in a novel is meted out. So basically, you know, at the beginning, we're a little disoriented because we don't know why Howard Young is strewing his pants in the bushes, but information is, is meted out then, which clarifies for us what is happening. So she does such a good job of really having control over the plot and the elements as they are being revealed. But so many of the really important elements of the novel are um, kind of, she gives us a piece of them that provides real tension and real mystery. And we're like, wait, what is happening? Like, this sounds urgent and crazy. And then 
a few pages later, not too long and not too soon thereafter, we have sort of an explanation for whatever this thing was. So let's look at an example of this right on page two. She does this right from the start. And again, it is so well done. So down at the bottom of page two, you know, we're like one page into the novel. She says this, this year with nowhere to go, no Joel and no Charleston, I made the drive down. It's been three or four Christmases away. So you, you don't know who Joel is. You don't know who Charleston is. We are gathering this idea that she lives in San Francisco and she's driving down to Los Angeles, but we also don't know why she's been choosing to go to Charleston with Joel for three or four years. So we have these mysteries that are really significant. Like who's Joel? Why did they go to Charleston? And why has she not spent, I mean, when she says three or four Christmases away, guaranteed it's four, I would imagine. So, you know, why is she like a little bit estranged from her family? And why is she going back now? So you have all of these big questions that are in this kind of throwaway sentence. Like um, this year with nowhere to go, I decided to drive down. It, so much is in that M dash. You guys know that I love M dashes, love them. They're so versatile and so excellent. And we have very good use of them here because no Joel, no Charleston in this very staccato, very kind of terse and very uh, like effective way are in the middle of these important M dashes. And then, so that's a little chunk of text. Then we have a space break. And then we have this sentence, except for Linus being gone, everything was the same. And again, we're on page two. We're like, wait, who's Linus? We're like, who's Joel? Who's Linus? Why are we not with Joel? Why is Linus gone? So we in on the second page of the book, she's presenting a bunch of big mysteries and kind of all in a row here. But she does it so well that you are not unmoored. You're just intrigued. You're like, wait, who are these guys? Who's Linus? Also, the names Joel and Linus is just so good. I mean, you just picture Linus from, um, you know, from Peanuts, maybe if you're my age, if you're 53, like with his blanket. I think that's Linus. I think he was always sucking his thumb, which is very cute. You know, younger brother, which is exactly who he is in the in the story as well. I'm pretty sure he's the younger brother. That's my terrible memory. Okay, and then we're gonna look at page 10 to see what happens uh, with this tension that she has built up so masterfully. So on 10 here, once again, um, my phone rings a minute after midnight. It's my brother. I've been singing a song about you, I say, and sing Christmas minus Linus. I just made that up. That was a tune I made up myself. It's catchy, Linus says, you have a gift. The thing is, I'm not allowed to find fault, not with his litany of excuses, not when so many resemble my own. So I personally was so relieved. I, when, in, originally when she's like with Linus gone or besides Linus being gone, everything looked the same. I was like, is Linus dead? Like, where's Linus? So I was so relieved that Linus, that we know he's her brother and that we know he's fine. And that in fact, she has an enormous amount of compassion and understanding. She's singing a cute song to him. Um, things are light enough between the two of them that we also know they have, you know, you get right from the sense of she's singing this funny song to him and understanding why he is not at home. You, you have this very nice sense of the two of them as being um, really, you know, close. I am now remembering, yes, that he is considerably younger, which is part of the problem because he, as we're going to find out, was at home for the brunt of their alcoholic father's alcoholic stuff happening. Uh, and the older daughter, Ruth, was spared much of that. Okay, so we, we've 
begun to solve the question of Linus, although then a, a new thing is set up, a new tension and a new question, which is like, wait, she can't, you know, she can't like criticize this litany of excuses because they resemble her own. And you're like, who, why are they making excuses? What's going on? Again, it's this incredible tension that's building, that's woven so deftly into all of these digressions and these funny parts and the mom yelling at the vitamin. And it's, it's just delightful, but I think um, deceivingly complex and really, really well done. So then down at the bottom of the page, and I love the parallelism here, we have this. A few weeks after the engagement, someone asked what I was looking forward to about marrying Joel. And I thought, the clarity. But that was kind of pulled out from under me. And then there's a space break. Also, I loved saying the word fiance, which whatever, poor, poor me. So I, I really enjoyed the fact that on page two of the novel, we first hear about uh, no Joel, and then like, except for Linus, everything looked the same. So we have this kind of um, pairing of the brother and the ex-fiance on page two. And then we have the exact same on the, on page 10. We have both of these things kind of wrapped up in some ways, or, or sort of the mystery of them is beginning to be solved. And again, this is that kind of pacing. It is a masterclass in pacing because you have these, uh, you know, these beautiful tensions that are built and these questions that are posed. And as a reader, you're like, what? And then, you know, eight pages later, you're somewhat satisfied, but you still, you know, you're sort of even deeper involved in these questions. Okay. And then if we look at page 20, Linus was in the eighth grade when I left for college. And the next year, our father was drinking again. What happened was he hadn't had a drop when we were growing up and after I left, he did. So this is so significant. And this is one of those um, times when I was going back through the novel that I, it was important. It was an important uh, touchstone, an important kind of uh, revelation about how close they were. So there's this notion that when she left, something in the family shifted in such a way. And, and you do get the sense that she's very, very close to her father. And this was a first indication on page 20 that frankly, I didn't totally pick up on. Uh, you know, there's a lot happening in this book. So I didn't get the sense right from the start how close they were and how much he really adored his daughter. Although that becomes increasingly clear as we move forward. But you have this, this you know, in the, the, the first thing, Linus is not at home. Then the second thing, you know, this catchy tune and this notion of like, I can't be critical of him. And then we have this much kind of more bald revelation on page 20 that he got kind of shafted, poor Linus. I mean, a, but this is a bummer. Like to have your older sister leave and to kind of have things in your family become much more difficult would really be a cause for a lot of resentment. Okay, and then on page 27, we still have the question of her own excuses because don't forget, she hasn't been home for three or four years. And, um, you know, she, she said, I can't criticize Linus because so many of his excuses resemble my own. So we still have this question of, of, you know, what, what are her, what's her beef? What's her beef with her family? And on page 27 here, 10 years ago, Linus was a junior in high school and I was away at college. Our father took up with another professor at the school. She taught physics. It had gone on for six months when our mother found out. They were never very scrupulous. After which there were apologies and there was counseling. The professor moved away. And that was the end of that. 
I mean, was it though? Because later you have this woman in the study group who definitely seems like she has some sort of relationship with Howard Young. So I think we are meant to see him as this serial philanderer. And, and this very, very large and important question arises about, you know, if you know that, that things are going to fall away for him and that he is in decline and you presumably, if you're his wife, you loved him at some point, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes very convoluted. It becomes very difficult. I mean, I'm not speaking from personal experience, thank God, but I would imagine that this is a very difficult position for the entire family to be in, uh, especially as he's becoming less and less scrupulous and less and less kind of, um, you know, uh, undercover as he is losing, essentially losing his mind. But what's beautiful here is now we understand why she also has her revelations. And here, you know, we began on page two, page 10, page 20, page 27. So again, this is this very nice pace with which she is meeting out our uh, important information. Okay, and then um, we have on page 27, there's also, or sorry, not on page 27, but, uh, oh, one of the other things, one of the other sort of mysteries, again, is this idea of Joel and what's up with Joel. And this is, this was even more opaque for me. I mean, we know that Joel was her fiance and we know that it didn't, things did not go well. But at one point she makes this reference to how she was newly disengaged from Franklin, who had been distracting me from my disengagement with Joel. So you find out in these kind of backwards, I mean, even the convolution in that sentence is impressive. So you find out in these convoluted ways that, you know, she broke up with Joel and then there have been kind of a series of these different men, none of whom are very uh, significant. And she's really still, uh, you know, sort of in, in grieving as her name apparently attests to, uh, you know, she's still grieving this, this breakup with her fiance. And then on page 67, we have kind of a whopper so well done, um, right? Kind of up at the top of 67. I was seeing a mechanic named Franklin who had a weakness for carrot cake and a two-year-old son named Davy. This was week number two of Franklin. We'd last a month. So this is so, I mean, last we heard about him was on page 27. So this idea we, we heard about Franklin was sort of introduced then. And then for 40 pages, we don't hear anything else about Franklin. So these are these kinds of breadcrumbs that she's dropping that, that we're, we're accumulating them. Again, you should pay attention if you hear a name, especially like Franklin. Um, and then this masterful encapsulation of their entire relationship and everything you need to know about Franklin in this idea of, and it's so well worded, um, Franklin, who had a weakness for carrot cake and a two-year-old son named Davy. Wow, I mean, that tells you all of the complexity of the relationship, like all of, like, he seems like such a nice guy and he loves carrot cake and that's kind of a salient thing, like that's so sweet. And then he also has a two-year-old son, Davey, which is, that's a, that's a you know, it, that makes things more complicated, I would imagine, if you were dating. Um, and then I love the fact, um, this was week number two of Franklin, we'd last a month. So there's also this sense of like, this also didn't work. There's a very finite, very kind of, um, you know, this isn't, we're not building a lot of tension about Franklin here, which we also know she's not with him anymore. But I, I really do like this idea of talking about it in the second week and also letting us, there's like a prophecy there that's like, this is not gonna last, which makes the next part even more painful. So on that same page, in fact, in that same chunk of text, Again, this is a book with a lot of uh, space breaks. In that same chunk of text, she's with Franklin in the grocery store and she runs into Joel, which is just like, 
I mean, it's a crusher. It is a crusher. So down here at the bottom, um, she is now meeting Joel, this woman who is with Joel. You're Ruth, said a woman, pleased to meet you. Joel introduced her as Kristen. I said something that was supposed to be normal, but came out weird. A pleasure, maybe, or pleasure's all mine, which is so, it's so excellent. We love Ruth as being sort of awkward and bumbly and not handling this particularly well because no one would handle this particularly well. Also, um, any of you writers out there, do keep in mind that if you want your reader to love a character, you should show them all your character's weaknesses. Do not show all the strengths. You want to show the weaknesses. You want them being awkward and bumbling and vulnerable. So I'm going to leave it right there with this terrible meeting of Joel and Kristen and Franklin and Ruth at the grocery store. Join us for the second, the third installment. This is the end of the second. Join us for the third installment where we're going to talk about character arc the transition that she makes. We're going to talk about humor and the close of the novel. So thank you for tuning in to section two and please join us for the third chunk of our discussion of Rachel Kong's incredible Goodbye Vitamin.